So, um, John, Tim, Rodney, and Lauren, thank you. And those of you who are watching online, uh, you don't see this setup back here, but it's a complicated thing, and I'm glad that they do that. So would you please make sure that your cell phone is in the off position for this time? And let's begin as we do in silence. Let's take a deep breath or two just to be here. Could worry about the playoff games later. May grace be in our heads and in our thinking. May grace be in our eyes and in our seeing. May grace be in our ears and in our hearing. May grace be in my mouth and in my speaking today. May grace be in our hearts and in our understanding. And may grace be at our ends and at our departing. I hope you will take seriously um, what Diane said about community building. In a couple of weeks, the uh, committee that formed and a few others out of the um, work that we had going on with a consultant that will meet after class, we're trying to come up with a better structure for um, distributing responsibilities in the class in a fairer way so that people don't get locked into lifetime commitments of service <laughs> like I have. <laughs> um, but really, we, we want to have a, a better sense of organization for that. That's what the purpose is and your aid in doing that. So no matter who you are, no matter where you are in your spiritual journey, you are celebrated here. Um, I do want to mention that on the um, 28th, is that the date? St. Paul's will be celebrating its anniversary. And um, our senior minister came to me a number of weeks ago and asked if on the 28th we would be willing to donate this time because they're going to convert this space into a project for feeding the hungry and the goal of packing meals during that time. There will be a churchwide lunch that you will be getting more information on as time passes. But on that date, we will not, we will meet, but we won't have a talk like this. We're going to spend time, if you're willing, helping to pack, I think they have an astronomical goal to pack a number of lunches to send to, to help feed the hungry. So that will be that date. Just give you a heads up about that. Okay? With that? So, Happy New Year. I'm going to use this time today to um, introduce a new theme that I intend to be following for this calendar year. And I'm calling today's time Moving into the Stream. And the tentative title for the overall theme that will be taking our attention all year is going to be called Living in the Sacred Stream. And um, the sources that I have, that have inspired me and that I'll be drawing on are many. And um, I'm going to give you the major ones today and to try to outline, as far as I can see it, the territory that we are going to be covering.
uh, it's an ambitious task. You know, a few, a few years ago, I came up with a theme. I like themes. And they keep me motivated and keep my interest up. And I figure if I'm not interested in this, you won't be. So I want to, want to be interested. A few years ago, I came up with this theme of living between the no longer and the not yet. And part of that was inspired after my meeting with Ilya Delio. Did you know that's been over 10 years ago? It seems like a few months. And, and some of you may remember that um, Ilya Delio had a definition of God, which he uh, described as um, God is evolving, expanding, creative, and entangled. It was a wonderful thing for me to hear that that long ago because I resonated with it so deeply. By the way, that's one of the ways that you can know something about an authentic or wise or useful spiritual teaching is if it's something that you resonate with. If you don't resonate with it, put it, put it aside. Um, I talked then about what, I use the phrase a new, new cosmology, and of course there's absolutely nothing new about the cosmology or about the cosmos. It's just new to us, uh, many of us, to our understanding of how things are. And to me, this understanding are, has just been dazzling in its wonder and has given me such a deep appreciation for the fine-tuning on this tiny planet in all of that vastness, the, the fine-tuning that had to occur to give the cosmos the ability to reflect back upon itself. That's what humans have the capacity to do. We can reflect back on the cosmos, the nature of the cosmos. We're unique in that particular way. On the other hand, these new understandings have been troubling for a lot of people because they clash with what they have been taught by the church or by their family. And um, people have embraced certain beliefs as being solid, and they have been told that those beliefs they must hold on to because their eternal salvation is dependent on their believing these beliefs. And if something comes along to challenge those beliefs, then that's very upsetting for these people. The fact is that what we call the sacred presence of God has always been here. It didn't just come with Jesus. It didn't just come to a special group of people, but it's always been present and available to all. And so we are living in this time when what many of us believed, what we took for granted, what we thought was eternally true, simply is no longer. And we don't yet have the rituals and words in place to honor and express our place in this newness yet. Even the most progressive churches, this one included, still sing hymns and say creeds that honor a pre-Copernican worldview. 
and we don't live in that world anymore. It's also true that our goal is to walk a path forward into this unknown future with a deeper understanding and involvement with ourselves in one hand, a deeper understanding and involvement with what we mean sacred mystery in the other, and choosing to walk this path illuminated by our understandings of the teaching of Jesus because we are in a Christian tradition. Now this is where the sacred theme, the sacred stream comes in. I'll have more to say about Jesus as our guide in, in a minute. I want to give you a heads up, and if Callista were sitting here in her usual place, I would be directing this to her. I am going to mention a lot of books today. These are not necessarily recommendations for you to read. Some of them will be. But I do want you to be aware of the sources that we'll be drawing on going forward. And that when I'm teaching, when Holly and I are teaching, when Holly's teaching, whoever, that we're not just making this stuff up. That there is good, solid scholarship underneath what we're saying. I have been seeing the spiritual director that I'm currently seeing for over 10 years. And when she found out that I read and liked to read, she recommended to me two books. The first one was a book called The Grace in Dying. This is a book by Kathleen Dowd Singh. This book has absolutely nothing to do with the theme that I'm introducing. Except it has everything to do with how you will live your life in the stream that we will be talking about. You ought to buy this book. You ought to read this book. You've read it? Yes. You agree? Oh, yes. And have given it away. Yes. She's written several. But the grace in dying, grace in aging, this is a must. You will thank me for buying and reading this book. Now, if you are in the process of active dying, don't read it. <laughs> you, you need to, you, because this is a book where you're gonna plan some things. But you will thank me for reading this book. I was so, I devoured this book. And I was so smitten with the book that I found out how to get in touch with Kathleen Singh and I got her on the phone, and I played the, hey, I'm a friend of uh, Richard Rohr's card. <laughs> a little disingenuous, but, you know, got to do what you have to do. And she said, oh, any friend of Richard's is a friend of mine. And I said, I would love to get you to come to Houston, to St. Paul's. I wanted her to be part of an endowment speaker. And she said, I will come. We begin to work out the dates. I don't know if you are aware, but in an organization as big and complicated as St. Paul's, finding a date for somebody to come and do something here is really complicated. So we went back and forth and finally found a date. She was coming. Every, we signed a contract. Everything was done. And six weeks later, I got a call from her. And she said, I have just been given a catastrophic cancer diagnosis. I'll be dead in six weeks. On her website, her daughters put, our mother died as she taught, with grace. I'm so disappointed that she never got to come here. Read this 
book. About three years ago, my spiritual director recommended this book by the same author. I'm not recommending this book, but I want you to know about it. This is a hard book to read. It's hard to read because it's hard to, to, to embrace academic, intellectually some of the things that she is talking about. But it's hard to read because the message of this book is that if you want to have life, you have to be willing to give it up. And that's a hard message to hear. We mouth it easily because it's a part of the Jesus teaching. Want to have life, give it up. Oh, yeah, we agree with that. But she makes it real. And the, 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 the origin of the notion of the theme of the sacred stream comes from this book, which I'll talk to you about in just a minute. When I first, three or four years ago, was recommended to read this book, I couldn't do it. So if you want to explore it, you know, you can go on Amazon, you can read a sample of a book, actually a pretty long sample, before you decide to buy it. And um, just be aware that it's got some brain-challenging, self-challenging um, things in it. And it's from this book that I got the idea of living in the sacred stream. <clears throat> How many of you have an intimate, personal experience with a stream? Now, I'm not talking about seeing a picture of one. I'm not talking about a, a river. I'm talking about what we in Tennessee call a creek. <laughs> How many of you have? I'm just curious. Have a, hold your hand up. Okay, about a third, I'd say, maybe a fourth of you. My grandparents had one that um, ran through their property. This is not a picture of that. They lived in the Cumberland Mountains in Tennessee. I looked up the small town where they live, Flintville, Tennessee. It's still in existence. Population currently 722. And I spent my summers in Flintville between the years of 1943 and 1953. That was a they had no plumbing, no electricity. The nearest phone was in Fayetteville, over 11 miles away. I loved that. There was a footlog across the creek that you could walk from one side to the other. No railings. I like that thing. It's scary. On one side of the creek was the house, the cow pasture, farming over if you face the house over to the left, cow pen behind, there was a grape bar behind the house. There was a smokehouse, an ice house. They had no refrigeration. Then you cross the creek and there was a sawmill. There was a sugarcane press that was pulled by a mule. There was a vat in which my grandfather made molasses. It was a wonderful place. I don't know what the origin of the creek was. We never, we walked away up and down the creek, played in the creek, waded in the creek, tried to catch tadpoles in the creek, made little dams in the creek. But if you've ever had experience with the creek, you know that just watching it is fascinating. The stuff that comes down and all that. 
And, and for one thing, you will notice that there are these little things that form along the edge of the creek, these little whirlpools that form. They're called eddies. You know that thing, um, if you still take a bath, which I hope you do, but you can, there are showers also. If you take a bath and you pull the plug out of the bathtub and the water that goes around, that's called an eddy. And it's a little eddy at the side of the creek. The word eddy means to turn back in on itself. That's a spiritual implication there. Now, imagine that this eddy that you're looking at in the creek has a personality. Imagine that this eddy can think. And that after a while, with its twirling pattern pulling leaves and twigs into itself, it identifies itself as something that actually exists. It's separate from the creek. And so this eddy starts comparing itself to other eddies in the stream. And it works hard to maintain itself as an eddy. It is protective of its own circularity and cherishes its swirling. Now, it goes absolutely unconscious about where it came from. It forgets the centuries of snow that made its creation possible. It comes to think it is an independent thing. And it becomes unconscious of its fragile impermanence. It does not realize that a small eight, nine, ten-year-old boy with a twig can come along and the eddy is no more. It leaves no trace in the water whatsoever. Each of us is an eddy. We emerge from causes and conditions we easily become unconscious of. And unless we do our work, we become trapped in that constriction until the twig comes along. Moving out of the eddy, giving up that identity and moving into the stream is one of the things that sacred work is all about. It's about moving out of the eddy and living in the stream. You know, water is a very powerful, persuasive spiritual and religious image. Another place where there's a powerful water image is in a commentary by someone you've heard mentioned in here frequently. As a matter of fact, we gave weeks and weeks to going through the Gospel of John using commentary by John Sanford, who was a union analyst and an Episcopal priest. And in, in this book, Living um, the Kingdom Within, Sanford talks about growing up in a farmhouse, much like the one where my grandparents lived. And for water, they relied on a well just outside their door, which is what my grandparents did. You know, it's a well where you let a bucket down in the well, and then you pull the rope up, and when you get the bucket to the top, there is the coolest, clearest, Freshing tasting water 
possible. I heard somebody say the other day that if you're paying two dollars and a half for a bottle of smart water, it isn't working. <laughs> and then one day electricity modernization came to that house where Sanford grew up, so they dug another well, they put piping into the house and electricity, running water, working toilets, which of course is wonderful, but in the process they closed off the well. And Sanford writes that years later he returned to that place, the house is still there, he longed for a taste of that water from that well, so he uncovered the well and let down the bucket and nothing. The well was dry. And, and he found out later that the well was dry because if you don't constantly pull water up out of a well like that, it doesn't refill. And so the rivulets that supply the water for the well clog up, the well dries up. And Sanford uses that to illustrate that if we don't do the work to go deep inside what's called the unconscious, the sources that really nourish us, nourish us dry up. It reminds me of my favorite saying from the Gospel of Thomas. If you bring forth what is within you, what you bring forth will save you. If you do not bring forth what is within you, what you do not bring forth will destroy you. So developing the willingness to see our eddy-like nature, our eddy-like habits, particularly habits of the mind, and then develop the willingness to move into the stream to learn about and pay attention to everything that is out there around us, within us. Paying attention is the name of the spiritual game. We're lost. So there's our eddy-like nature. That's one stream. Then there's the vast unconscious, not just our personal unconscious, but the vast collective unconscious that joins us to all others. Others of our own species, to be sure, but all others. All other living things and beings. So that's a second way that I will be using the metaphor of the stream that we'll be returning to over and over. And then there are the teachings of Jesus, which is the third stream that we'll be using and talking about. You know, just as with discoveries about the cosmos, just as with discoveries about the brain and the mysterious aspects of how this mostly still unknown organ works, just as with advances made in almost all other disciplines, just also there have been advances in the area of history linguistics, archaeology that affect religion, all religions. So up until around 1700, perhaps a few years before, people just took for granted what people in authority told them was true. And mostly that authority came from the church, sanctioned by the state. I'm talking about Western world now, thinking Western Europe. So in that Western world of the 1700s, only a third of the male population could read. One in 10 females could not read. 
I think one of the terrifying things about the status of public education today is, especially since the pandemic, is that our children are not learning how to read. They're not learning to read at a level that they need to read in order to become the responsible leaders we hope they will become for the future. My opinion is that it is imperative that people learn to read because later we read to learn. At any rate, most people in America knew about as much about religion, their own, anybody else's, as we knew about the cosmos in the 50s. Not much. Today, many more people know much more about the cosmos than they do about religion. Christian nationalism, which is a terrifying prospect, is set to play havoc with our country and our lives, primarily because of religious illiteracy. In fact, it's already doing this with a momentum that is going to be really difficult to stop. That's going to make 2024 a very interesting, tumultuous year. Now, religion in some, some shape or form is important, or you wouldn't be here. Outside of here, most people in this country will openly declare that whether they're involved in a church or not, that religion is important to them. They'll say, I'm a believer. And yet, these very people, some of them even in churches, are very ignorant. They're not stupid people. But when it comes to religion, they're very ignorant about the history and the origin of the religion that they occupy. There are people who will tell you how important the Bible is to them. But they could not tell you a thing about the history of the Hebrew Scriptures, how the Bible came to be written, why it is that we have certain books in the Bible and not others. Sadly, most Americans cannot name the four Gospels. And people who use a verse from the Hebrew Scripture that does not sanction same-sex marriage cannot tell you a thing about the real story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, you know, if you've heard me before, that I think religious, biblical literacy is extremely important. And so is religious literacy. I don't know what percentage would be, but I'll bet the majority of people, even college graduates, cannot name the five major religions of the world. I bet most people who are so upset about the religion of Islam cannot name the five pillars of Islam. Now, there's a huge difference between teaching about religion and the teaching of religion. And I think it's paradoxical that though Americans have a deep commitment to religion, our knowledge of religion is as shallow as the commitment is deep. We need answers about important matters, and religion is an important matter. It's going to run this country. 
Now, if answers are true and they keep us on a human, humane, spiritual path, they're wonderful. But answers that are not wonderful, answers are not wonderful when they become things that make people arrogant. If your religion closes you down, it's not a good religion. And it's because religion has so often and for so long asked the wrong questions and trusted the wrong authority that people have become rigid moralist or dogmatic demagogues. The questions have become things like, well, is there a heaven? <clears throat> I preached a sermon here last year that has gotten people fired in other churches. So far, I still have a job, but the sermon was, there's no hell. And you would think that Christians would say, oh, what a wonderful thing, but they don't. <laughs> anyway, somebody a few weeks ago said, I need to talk to you about that sermon. I agree with you about hell, but what about heaven? Is there no heaven? Somebody said people wonder about what, whether there's a heaven or not when they don't know what to do with themselves on a rainy Sunday afternoon. The real religious questions are what I have to do to leave the eddy. Not what I have to do to be saved. What I have to do to leave that identity behind and to embrace the identity I've been given. By the way, the uh, five major religions, I know some of you know, uh, all of you know, are Hinduism, Judaism, Christianity, Islam, and Buddhism. And the five pillars of Islam are, there is one God, prayer five days a day, five times a day, which wouldn't hurt anybody in this room, right? Uh, giving of alms, fasting during Ramadan, making a pilgrimage to Mecca, those are the five. But I knew you knew that. My point is that knowledge and information can fit with what is factually true or it can get muddled, muddied. In our time, misinformation, con conspiracy theories and the like are muddling the minds of many people. If you drink muddy water, it's going to make you sick. And if we don't take time to go within, not only do we never know ourselves, but we end up leave, living life on the surface. That's the, another word for that is superficial living. Now, when people ask me what I believe, I've developed a bunch of smart-alecky answers. The, the, the truth is, what I believe is how I live my life. That's my faith. How you live your life is what you believe. And the longer I've lived, the more I've come to understand that whatever faith I have is a gift of grace. It's not something you choose. It chooses you. But if you're not in the place and haven't done the work to de develop an awareness of that, you won't be aware or overtaken by grace. So that's the stream of knowledge and information as well as the wisdom and understanding that's beyond it that we are going to try to immerse ourselves in. It's my belief that the way to combat the gone wrongness of religion in our time is not to engage in a frontal attack, but just to shine the light of truth on things. 
what's true, what's factually true. So next is this guy, Jesus. What can we know about Jesus? Ever since discovering last year this uh, painting by Rembrandt, I've been smitten by this painting. I had never heard, seen it before. It's in a museum in Berlin. And um, some people think that Rembrandt himself was a model for this and that because he lived in the um, Jewish quarter of Amsterdam that he himself may have been Jewish. I don't know. I'm not an art historian. We don't know what Jesus looked like. He did not look like all the pictures that hang in Protestant churches. <laughs> but forensic archaeologists now, using the tools at their disposal, including DNA and history and all the other tools of archaeology, have found remains of male skeletons in the time and geogra geographical place where Jesus lived and have reconstructed what a male between the ages of 28 and 34 might have looked like during that time. This is not what Jesus looked like either. It's just what the archaeologists using their best tools can currently construct. Now, what did Jesus teach? Well, if you, if you embrace what's called reveal theology, that problem is settled. Jesus said, what's in the Bible? That's reveal theology. That's the theology that I grew up with. The Bible said it. I believe it. That settles it. In light of the discoveries handed to us by the Hubble telescope and the James Webb telescope, this is like saying, in spite of what those things say, my, my astronomy still is twinkle, twinkle, little star. <laughs> I've learned I cannot have a fruitful conversation with anyone who says about some issue, well, the Bible says, because the Bible doesn't say anything. The Bible says what that person wants the Bible to say. Now, again, just as there's been an explosion of knowledge and information about the nature of the cosmos in the last 50 years, and this knowledge has been coming with us at accelerating speed, just so in biblical and religious studies. And I will tell you, I've said this before, but the, one of the major ways that the church, Protestant and Catholic, has failed its members is by not teaching this material. One biblical scholar who has dedicated his life <clears throat> to bringing to public in a popular manner these discoveries of biblical archaeology is a guy by the name of Bart Ehrman. And two of his many worthwhile books are Lost Scriptures, books that did not make it into the New Testament, and Lost Christianities, which describe the multitude of forms and variety and difference in belief of the early Christian, of the early Jesus communities 
prior to the early part of the fourth century, the church was not born on Pentecost 50 days after resurrection. It was 400 years before Constantine, a politician, called the first church council. So during that time, and now we have scholars who have devoted themselves to studying this time, studying the literature that's been discovered, discussing archaeology things. They have, they're able to say what these early communities may, may have looked like. And further, after Constantine, the content of what the church has taught has not been what Jesus taught, but what the church has taught about Jesus. And that's where the battles of the church have really been. Was Jesus born of a virgin? Did Jesus really, really raise from the dead? Was Jesus the son of God? Blah, 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 blah. Not about what Jesus said when he said, if you want to have life, you have to give everything away. Well, let's just talk about the resurrection. That's easier. I have a lively, almost daily, spirited relationship with a dear friend of mine who is a thoroughgoing, openly declared atheist. A lot of the cartoons that you see in here on Sunday are from him. <laughs> he has no patience with religion in any shape or form, and yet he loves me and I love him and we've had a relationship for 50 years. He is the first person I ever met who is a member of Mensa. And so he sends me these jokes and cartoons and articles to read. And recently, he sent me an interview with Russell Moore, who was on NPR. Russell Moore was at one time one of the top officials in the Southern Baptist Convention. And my religious background and training were at the hands of Southern Baptists. I graduated from a Southern Baptist University, Southern Baptist Seminary. I taught for two years in the Southern Baptist Seminary until I got fired, but that's another story. When Donald Trump first came on the scene, Russell Moore criticized him publicly. And in exchange for that, Moore found himself ostracized a bit from the Southern Baptists. And then Moore openly criticized the Southern Baptist Convention's response to sexual abuse among its clergy, which is so ironic because the Southern Baptists were so vocal in their criticism of the Roman Catholics for the same thing. And yet, when they got covered up, involved in a cover-up, and that got exposed, oh, and then Russell Moore said something about it, he got in trouble. And then, Russell Moore took a very vocal opposition to what he saw as an increased tolerance for white nationalism within the Southern Baptist Convention, and suddenly he found himself without a job. This story gets worse. Russell Moore has written a book called Losing Our Religion, an altar call for evangelical America. And in it, he tells example after example where pastors, in quoting Jesus from their pulpits, in using something like the Sermon on the Mount as their text, have been approached by parishioners who have said, where did you get those liberal talking points? And when told they come from Jesus, 
The response has not been, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know. But rather, that doesn't work anymore. Moore's point is that when we get to where the teachings of Jesus himself are seen as subversive, then we are in a crisis. Now, I think I can safely say I've given the last 20 years of my life focused on the very matter of who Jesus was and what Jesus taught. And I could get in trouble for what I'm about to say, but the honest answer about what Jesus said, literally and for sure, is that we don't know. Jesus spoke Aramaic. The Gospels were written in Greek and then translated into Latin and then translated into German and then translated into a version of English none of us could read today. And on and on. The manuscripts were not Xeroxed. They were hand copies. Mistakes were made. Editorial in insertions were made in the text. Opinions were inserted. And again, don't take my word for this. Bart Ehrman, the scholar who has devoted his life to this, has written books popularizing this research. One of them is called Misquoting Jesus, the story behind who changed the Bible and why. And Jesus interrupted, revealing hidden contradictions in the Bible and why we don't know about them. I told you I was going to be mentioning a lot of books today, didn't I? You have all these read by next week. <laughs> the four Gospels in the Christian scriptures are Mark, Matthew, Luke, and John. That's the order in which they were written. And since then, there have been four additional versions of the Gospel of Jesus that have been based on these four. This as far as I know of. The first, and I'm almost positive that very few, if any of you, know of this work, is the gospel in brief constructed by Leo Tolstoy. This was first published in 1893 or so. Since parts of it could not be published in Russia, we don't know when all of it was published. It's really pretty good, very scholarly. The guy was quite a scholar. Um, you can't get it on an e-reader, e at least I couldn't, but uh, you can get a copy of this from Amazon. The introduction, I'll quote a little bit of it in, in, in a minute. Then there is the Jefferson Bible, which I'm sure some of you have heard about. Um, Jefferson created this Bible in 1820, and the way he did it was by taking a razor and cutting out parts of the New Testament that he didn't like, and then putting what was left together. He took out um, all the miracles that Jesus mentioned, the resurrection, other things like that. Anything that said Jesus was divine, he got rid of. Jefferson was also a very smart man, speaking Latin and French and English and Greek. But I don't look to this as a source for academic inspiration. This is not, this is not a book. It's interesting. Congress used to be given copies of this. But now I don't think they do. The other two books are The Gospel of Jesus and The Gospel According to Jesus. The Gospel of Jesus is a product of the Jesus Seminar, which is led by Robert Funk. I knew Robert. Um, he died a few years ago. Robert is an incredible biblical scholar. Um, the 
organization that's behind the Jesus Seminar, the Westar Institute, is still in existence, still publishing papers. They're now focused on the early days, days of the Christian movement. This book was published in 1993. Is it not up there? Oh, I'm sorry. Does that do it? Uh, this book was published in 1993. Um, you can't get it in the e-reader either, but it's um, worth, worth having. A few years ago, I taught through this book, if you, some of you might remember. And then there's a book by Stephen Mitchell. Mitchell is also a very renowned linguistic scholar. And um, this book was published about the same time as the Jesus Seminar. Mitchell was aware of the Jesus Seminar. He was not a member of the Jesus Seminar, but he knew all the guys and, and the few women who were involved in that, more women now. Um, interestingly enough, all four of these books that I have mentioned use the metaphor of a stream to talk about their work. I want to read to you what is in Leo Toy's preface. The source of the Christian teaching is the Gospels. And there I found the explanation of the spirit which animates the life of all who really live. But along with the flow of that pure life-giving water, I perceive much mire and slime unrightfully mingled therewith. And this had prevented me so far from seeing the real pure water. That Metaphor is also used by Stephen Mitchell. That metaphor is also used by Robert Funk. So there's a source of the stream, and then as the stream flows down, not only do eddies get created, but people pollute the stream. Right? So the goal in hopefully getting to the clear source of Jesus' teaching is what we will be doing. So there you have it, living in the sacred stream. There is the cosmic stream, of reality of what is. There is the spring within that is the depth that connects us to each other. And then there is the spring that is the source of the teachings of our tradition. Okay? Got that? Let me show you something I got for Christmas. We live in a building where you, if you want your mail, you go down and you get the mailbox. But if you get a package, they put it outside your door. And one day we got home and I had this. I knew immediately who this was from. This is a gift from my friend Rolf, who lives in Switzerland that we visited this past fall. And I was not expecting a Christmas present from him. But when I opened it, I was intrigued. Wow, what could this be? I couldn't see anything in it. So I opened it up. And inside was just a piece of paper. And Rolf says on the piece of paper, my dear Bill, Merry Christmas. I am sending you a box with the most unusual collection of stamps and mailing labels on it. I hope you enjoy it. Well, he's right. 
airmail. There, there's the optical illusion stamp here. There is a stamp here that is a replication of one of Escher's paintings. There are interesting stamps. There is, of course, the customs declaration stamp. There are all of these things that are here. I am also sending you a box to keep the gift in. This is not the gift. This is the gift. So the gift, the box that is the gift, goes in the box that was in the box that was on the outside. How about that? <laughs> this is a metaphor for this class. What's on the inside needs to be on the outside. And what you thought was impossible is possible. Your brain gets stretched. Things you didn't think could happen, happen. Seeing is believing. Not believing is seeing. The other way around. This class is not for people looking for easy answers. It's for seekers. I don't care whether you're religious or not, whether you attend church over there or not, or anywhere else. If you're a finder who's no longer seeking, I don't think you'll be comfortable here. Churches are full of people who are interested only in having their own thoughts reflected back to them. They listen to voices that tell them what they think they already know or what they want to hear. But seekers are thirsty for something more. That spring water at the source. And scary at times as it is, these people want to be more than the eddies they were taught and conditioned to think they are. Now the stream that we're going to talk about is not one you can jump over. I'm 87, I can't see the other side. But I can tell you this, I have felt the bottom and it's sound. And no matter how it feels or seems, it is a journey that we can undertake with the assurance that though we have no promise of smooth sailing and calm seas, we have been entrusted with an anchor and a compass. So it's into the stream we go. No matter where you go this week, no matter what happens, remember this, you carry precious cargo, so watch your step, and we'll see you here next week. Thank you.